So a few years ago, we were having a staff meeting here at New City Church. We were trying to figure out what to do for some event after a service. And if you're here last week, you know that for whatever reason, most people at New City Church are apparently from Michigan. That's a thing. And so Brian and Brittany, who are on staff here, are part of that coalition. And so they suggested that we do a barbecue. And I responded by, that's great. Like, barbecue after the service. I said, that's great, but that's really expensive. And they're saying, no, it's not expensive. And we're going back for about five to ten minutes until we realized, you know, people in the north have some vocabulary wrong. And people in the north often view, uh, often don't understand that a barbecue is not a verb. A barbecue is a noun. Right? A barbecue is not something you do. It is something that you eat. You see, what they meant by barbecue was they meant to say cookout. Hamburgers, hot dogs, like that's cheap, that's fine. Barbecue is great, but it's expensive. It's a particular type of food, and it's not a hot dog, it's not a hamburger, right? And so we had this miscommunication until we realized, right, they were wrong, I was right, obviously, and, and they realized, oh, in the South, we use different verbiage to explain these things. And so we were having a problem because what I thought they were saying or what, what they were trying to explain was not actually what they were trying to say. And today, as we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see Jesus confront and present to us uh, an answer to a question that I think if you were to ask most people, maybe the average person, you know, what was Jesus' primary message? Why did Jesus come? You would hear maybe a variety of answers. Uh, and what we may not understand is that the Scripture is actually clear about what Jesus' primary message was. And interestingly enough, it is often not what people might assume. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 1. We'll be in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 20. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black one around you. If you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. We started this last week. Mark is uh, one of the four Gospels in the New Testament. It's the shortest Gospel. He often gives uh, the least amount of detail, uh, background, information. Uh, and so last week, we saw him presenting Jesus, even in the first 13 verses. You have John the Baptist, who is a, the forerunner, who is a prophet, who is a, explaining that the Messiah has come. And then Jesus comes onto the scene around 30 years old to begin his earthly ministry. And he's already in the first 13 verses, presented as divine, as this God-man who has come, and now we're going to see the beginning of his ministry. And it says this in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. It says, after John was arrested, this was John the Baptist, uh, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So John was talked a little bit in the first 13 verses. Uh, he's out there talking about repentance, baptizing people, getting ready for people to know that the Messiah has come. Well, he gets arrested. Uh, this is obviously not good because you wouldn't want someone who's trying to be faithful to be God, to God to get arrested. But what does he get arrested doing? Announcing that the good, or what does he get arrested while he's doing? He's announcing that the kingdom has come, that God, that Jesus is here on earth. And so again, if you were to ask people to summarize the main idea of, or message of Jesus, you would get various responses. Uh, so for example, some people might say, well, the golden rule, right? Treat others how you want to be treated. That's really the primary message of Jesus. Maybe some people would say love or forgiveness or making it possible for me to go to the good place when I die, right? That's what, these are the kind of answers you might get if you were to ask people. Now, while it is true that these things are byproducts of why Jesus came, they are not the primary reason nor the primary message of why he came. What we see here, what Mark is presenting to us in the beginning of Jesus' kind of announcement, he's, he's onto the scene, and now that you know this, you'll see this throughout the Gospel of Mark and all the Gospels, is that Jesus' primary message was to teach and was to bring and was to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Again, that's, that's, that's what we see here. The primary message of Jesus is the kingdom, was the kingdom of God. 
Now, of course, all of these other things uh, go with it, loving people, forgiving people, giving people grace. They are part of it, but they are not his primary message. His primary message is that the kingdom is here, and he is inviting us in. Now, again, for us, we're 21st century, you know, this idea of the kingdom of God, that might sound interesting, right? Oh, the kingdom, that's interesting. Uh, for the first century, particularly first century Jews and people living in the area of Israel, this would have brought up particular ideas and connotations. You see, they have been waiting and the prophets have been talking about this Messiah who would one day come to vindicate Israel, to bring peace and prosperity on earth. And so the assumption was whoever was going to inaugurate this kingdom was going to obviously do it by force because how else do you do it? That they would overthrow the Roman Empire, that there would be peace and prosperity in Israel, and anybody in the world who would want to take part of this kingdom can come. And so there are assumptions that if the kingdom of God is here, well, certain things are going to happen in order to make that happen. But again, as we know, as we'll see throughout the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus' kingdom looks totally different than what they would have assumed and what you and I might have assumed. In other words, his kingdom is not full of people who are using domineering control to get at what they want out of people or manipulating people or using a, a, a force to get what they want. But instead, God's kingdom is full of people who live in this upside-down manner, uh, giving grace and forgiveness to people, giving love to people, uh, consider, considering other people as better than themselves, laying our life down for the good and the love of other people. It is this upside-down kingdom. And so what Jesus is doing is he's inaugurating his kingdom. That's his primary message. And he begins by telling us, how do you get into the kingdom of God? And again, it's part of this upside down kingdom. And it's not by force. It is not by effort. It's not by trying really hard. It is not by gaining God's favor. How do you do it? What does he say in verse 15? By repenting and believing. By repenting and believing. In other words, that the kingdom of God is either participated in or it is rejected. There's not a neutral ground here. You're either a part of it or you are not. Uh, maybe to make this a little bit more practical, when I was in college, my freshman year of college, I rushed a fraternity and it's basically there's like a week or two of you do stuff and you have these interviews and after that, if you want to join and they like you, then they give you like this little pin that you have to wear for the first semester and you have to do all these things. And at the end of the first, your first semester, then you get to join the fraternity. And so I, I rushed this fraternity. I, I pledged. That's what the word was. I couldn't remember the first service. I pledged. And so about a week or two into the semester, I get a voicemail Saturday around six o'clock. And it's, it was one of the uh, fraternity brothers, the older fraternity brothers. And he said, hey, Dylan, we're going to be, I don't remember where he said, a house or a bar or something. And we're going to call you later tonight for you to come pick us up and take us home. And I remember this in this voicemail and being like, you know, that doesn't sound fun. I'm hanging out with my friends. I just met these people, people in my dorm. Like, I have to wait around for you to tell me to come pick you up. Nah, I don't do that. And so I didn't join. <laughs> I didn't join. Why? Because they had certain expectations of me that I didn't feel like doing. And not to compare the kingdom of God to a fraternity because it, it's not quite the same. But what we see here, <laughs> the point of that is that we need to understand that the kingdom of God requires a response. It requires a response. It's not something neutral. It's not something that we just observe. We either participate in it or we do not. And if you want to participate in it, again, here's the good news. It's not about doing and trying and trying to crack some mysterious code. It is simply repenting, being honest. Right? Repenting just means to turn away. Be honest about your brokenness and trust and believe in the Messiah, the King who has come, who is inviting us into, our, into his kingdom. So it's not about us and our effort. It's about what he has done in his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. We repent, we be honest about our brokenness, and we trust in him, and he invites us in. Now, as good as, as exciting as this is to be known and to remember that it's not about effort that gets us in, we, often, we also have to remember the context of which this good news, this gospel, 
gospel is being announced. And it comes on the heels of John the Baptist being arrested. And if you were here last week, Jesus' earthly ministry begins with 40 days of fasting and prayer and being tempted by Satan. And then John gets handed over. Uh, If you know the story of John the Baptist, he eventually gets beheaded. And of course, if you know the story of Jesus, Mark also uses that same language and talks about how Mark or Jesus himself will also eventually be handed over to the Roman authorities. And he is often killed. In other words, we see happening here, and the good news for us, what we see throughout the New Testament, is that the gospel is known in adversity, 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 I can't speak the word, is known in adversity and suffering, not in ease and comfort. And here's the good news. Again, for us, this is not, I'm going to join, I'm going to repent and believe and follow Jesus, and everything's going to go well for me, and I'm going to get everything that I wanted, and nothing bad is ever going to happen again. That is not what we see in the gospel. John handed over, killed. Jesus handed over, killed. And the point here is that you and I are invited. In other words, if you are suffering, if you are facing depression, if you have doubts and questions, if you have difficult things that you're walking through, difficult things that have happened to you, the good news is that God has not rejected you. He has not turned his back on you, but he is inviting you right now in your midst of your pain, in the midst of your questions, in the midst of your doubts to come and to follow him that he is near to the brokenhearted. He is not far away. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you likely know this, that we often experience Christ more and his love and his grace more in difficulties than in good times. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom that we are invited to follow Jesus is often known best in adversity and suffering. And that's the context behind this announcement. And Jesus now is going to invite his initial disciples to follow him. And so looking back at Mark chapter 1, verse 16, here's what it says. It says, as he, talking about Jesus here, passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Salmon, uh, Salmon, <laughs> well, see, yeah. Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother, casting a net and told them, uh, told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, putting their nets in order. Immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now, again, a surface-level reading would, would, would allow us to miss some really interesting things that are going on. Uh, the first of, first of all is fishing in the Sea of Galilee was a shrewd business. So I don't know if you've ever watched shows or TV shows or movies about the disciples and Jesus. And you often see, you know, fishing happening. And Jesus calling his disciples throughout fishing. And you see them they're fishing, and they're in the sea, or they're in a lake, and there's nobody around. That is not at all what's happening here. Right? In the first century, it's, it's a hard, it's a difficult lifestyle. And so if you are, lived anywhere around the Sea of Galilee, uh, there's a good chance that you or your family was involved in this fishing business because you're trying to do whatever you can to survive. And so there would have been fish, every, or fish, well, obviously they're fishing. Uh, there would have been boats everywhere. It would have been a packed, it would have been a high-paced, very quick, um, no nonsense. I mean, it is a shrewd, it would have been a shrewd business. In fact, we know this because in, uh, in 68 AD, there was a, ro- a war between the Jews and the Romans, which eventually led to the Jewish temple and Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 AD, where Josephus is recorded, a Roman soldier Josephus is recorded as collecting 230 boats from the sea at one one time. Now, of course, not everyone left their boats there during the war. A lot of people would have fled and ran. And so all to say, it would have been packed. And in fact, here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee, just to give you a better idea of what it would have looked like. I know it's a little small, but from north to south, it's about uh, 13 miles long, and it's about seven miles wide at its most widest part, which, again, sounds great. Uh, sounds like it's really big, and it is, but it was packed full of people. You can't see it too well on the screen, but there's about 14 ports 
all around the Sea of Galilee. At the very top of it, at the very north of it, is where Capernaum is. Um, this is where Jesus' ministry began. Um, it, was lar- it was likely the largest port of all the 14 ports around the sea. And again, Capernaum itself was not a very large city, but there was a major trade route that went through it. And so there would have been a lot of traffic in the city and around it. And so this is where Jesus is calling his disciples. Now, that being said, we're also not told all that is being going on here. Like Mark just presents it as, he says, come and follow him, and they do it. Now, we also know that he actually had some sort of uh, reference point or acquaintance with some of the disciples beforehand. So, for example, uh, in John chapter 1, we know that Andrew and Simon had heard of Jesus and, in fact, perhaps may have even spoken to Jesus before this happened. And I say that uh, not to take anything away from their willingness to follow him because it was a big sacrifice, but it wasn't like it was some random dude that was just like, hey, bro. Want to come follow me? They're like, sure, right? There's more that went into it. And so this is where Jesus finds his first four disciples. They're fishing. It is a hard life. And he says, come and follow me. Not only that, there is something very significant happening that you and I in our 21st century context can also miss. And that is what it looked like or what happened when you actually followed a rabbi or a religious leader. You know, what Jesus does here is he says, come and follow me. That is actually never how it would have worked for a typical rabbi or Pharisee or Sadducee or religious leader at that time. You see, what typically would happen is most boys, at least in the Jewish setting, until they were 13 years old, many of them would uh, attend what was called rabbi school or the Torah school or the law school, and they would learn, you know, the Old Testament. And after they turned 13, uh, maybe some of the brighter students or if, if the student wanted to or the parent of a student wanted to, they would often approach a rabbi and ask if their student could continue to study under them. In other words, the student or the family initiated this. It was never the rabbi who went and initiated people to follow him. And so this is different. Also, it was never about following the rabbi in particular. So let me give you, let me explain what I mean. Um, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you had, you know, the prophets who would oft, often call people to follow God. They would often call people to repentance, saying, hey, repent of your sins. Hey, stop doing this. You know, repent and God will be gracious and kind. If not, destruction or disobedience or we will be judged. So the prophets would go along. And if you read the Old Testament, they never asked people to follow them. They always asked people to repent, to follow God, and to, be, and to follow his laws and his commands. It was never about the prophet. It was always about honoring God. In the first century, rabbis and leaders followed this same rule. It was never about following the rabbi. It was about learning from the rabbi, the Torah, and the prophets, or the Torah and the traditions. It was about learning the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, and learning the traditions that had been passed down through the generations. It was never about the rabbi themselves. Therefore, Jesus' call here is strikingly different, perhaps even blasphemous, because not only does he go and he calls people to follow them, he also talks about, I mean, not only does he go and pursues people, but he also talks about following him. He says nothing about the law and nothing about the prophets and nothing about the traditions at this point. In other words, this would be strange. You have someone who's calling people to follow him, and not for, not for the sake of just learning the law, but the sake of lear- for the sake of learning from him. In other words, following Jesus was not just about the law, and he could only do this if he was somehow communicating that he was over the law, that maybe he was somehow above the law or the originator of the law. And so when he's saying to come and to follow me, this is not at all what you would expect to be happening. And not only that, uh, Mark is making this striking uh, revelation or demonstrating something to us that was true about the disciples, and it's also true about us. And that is reality, that we don't search for Jesus, that Jesus searches for us. 
right? If Jesus had not come and through his death, burial, and resurrection, his perfect life allowed us to come and enter into his kingdom, there is nothing you and I could have done to make it happen. There is nothing you and I could do to wipe away our sins. There is nothing you and I could do to earn his grace and forgiveness. But Jesus comes and invites us in. He invites us and he calls us out. And if he had never come, there would be no hope for us. Let me maybe give you a modern example to make this a little bit more real. A couple of months ago, uh, we went to my older brother and my younger brother and myself went to the Coca-Cola 600, the NASCAR race in Charlotte, North Carolina. I don't know what I'm talking about, but that was where we went. And I went to like a, a race a year growing up, and I haven't been th- since I was in high school. My older brother's really into it. My younger brother was visiting from out of town, and so we go. And uh, my older brother, he does this little iRacing streaming NASCAR thing. And so he has some people that watch him do that. And so we're about, it's about two hours before the race starts. If you've ever been to a NASCAR race, there's trailers and everything all over the place. And so you're walking around and you're looking at stuff. And this one guy who was watching my older brother's stream also was going to be at the race. And so we asked if, if he could meet him up, meet up with him. And so just like meet him in person. And so that happens. My older brother has someone who comes and recognizes him. And we talk for a few minutes. And then the race is happening. And there's... 50,000, 70,000 people there. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a pretty big ordeal. And some, at some point during the race, my younger brother uh, left the, you know, the, the seats, the grandstands to go to the bathroom or to get a drink or something like that. And he gets a, a DM in his, either on Twitter or, or Instagram saying, hey, I noticed you. Are you at the race? And so my younger brother, he's, he's pretty well known in, in his field that he works in, but he lives in Los Angeles. All the way in North Carolina, someone also recognized him. So my younger, older brother gets recognized and called out. My younger brother gets recognized from a sea of people, gets called out. And then I was there. And uh, nobody asked to talk to me. Like, nobody was there to see me. And I was, you know, just hanging out. I was like, you know, what about me? Does someone want to pretend? I was like, who can I text? Is there anybody in the world who's at this race who can just, like, randomly run into Dylan, right? That happened. Hey, no one was surging for me. And as my three-year-old Roman said, I was sad. I was, I was sad. My heart was broken. I was going to cry. That's what he said. I'd be crying. I'd be sad. Uh, nobody came for me, right? And the good news of the gospel is that this is not how God treats us. He doesn't treat us like me. He treats us like my brothers, right? He comes for us. Now, I I know this is semantics here. I'm not saying that we don't search for him. If you have doubts and questions, we do that. Certainly we do that. But if he had not initiated towards us, we would have no hope. And yet he comes and he says, come and follow me. Come and partake in this kingdom, which again is completely unlike how you and I operate. And as we continue through the gospel of Mark, we'll see in more clarity what this kingdom actually looks like. Now, that being said, again, he's calling the disciples to come and follow him. And he uses a metaphor that sounds really nice until you actually think about it, right? So they're fishing, right? And so he says in verse 17, I will make you fish for people, or other translation says, I will make you fishers of men. And we're like, oh, that's cool. That sounds really cute. Um, And then you think about fishing and it sounds great unless you're the fish, because if you're the fish, you dead, right? Ain't nothing pretty about being fished for, right? But he says, I will make you fish for people. Now for us, this is, or for Jesus, this is actually a very uh, strategic and intentional uh, analogy that he is giving here. Because for Jesus, it's not just about following him, but it's about giving your life to him so that you can actually experience the kingdom of God. That he's, the disciples here, he's inviting them to die to themselves to experience the life that he offers. In fact, this is what Jesus says. Uh, In Matthew chapter 16, it'll be on the screen. Uh, He's talking to his disciples here about the difficulties of what does it look like to follow him. And he says this in verse 24 and 25. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. 
In other words, following Jesus is an invitation to die, right? And, it, and to be clear here, this is not some miserable, agonizing, like, I'm going to hate my life, life's going to be miserable. Like, if we're being honest here, I think sometimes we think that if I follow Jesus, that he's never going to want me to do anything that makes me happy, my life's going to be terrible, I don't get to have any fun anymore, and it's just going to stink, but, you know, I guess I do want to go to heaven, so I guess I might as well suck it up, and then hopefully things will work out for me. If we're being honest, that's what we might think is happening here, but that's not what Jesus says. Right, what does Jesus say? Yes, he talks about denying yourself, but for what reason? The reason why we do this is for life, right? What does Jesus say that we need to deny ourselves to experience life in him? I mean, it can't be hard, but for Jesus, there is no better way. See, what Jesus is claiming here is this, that Jesus is the way to life, to true life, to true joy, to true peace, to true forgiveness, to, to not having to earn and to having to work and to having to just hope that God somehow loves you and cares for you, that life can be found in him. To be clear, as we saw last week, as we'll see throughout the gospel of Mark, that Jesus is not just some great guy. Uh, he's not just some moral example, that he is the king who has come to initiate his kingdom and to invite us into it, that he desires to give life. As we say here often at New City Church, that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have nothing to prove and no one to impress. Because God has proven it through Jesus on the cross and he accepts you into his kingdom. Or I heard another way this week that someone put it this way, uh, that if you are in Jesus, you have nothing to, press, no, uh, nothing to prove, nothing to lose, and nothing to hide. That you can take your shame, your guilt, your sin, and you don't have to put up a facade. You don't have to pretend that you have it all together. You can be honest about your brokenness. You can be honest about your need for grace, that you have nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to you to lose. And I don't know about you, but to me, that feels like life. And so he is calling his disciples to experience this here. And he's talking them to do something, telling, he's explaining that to them that they are going to do something drastic, that it's not always going to be about your selfish desires and what you might want in the moment, that it's going to be difficult, but it is going to be worth it. He is calling people to allegiance to him above everything else, but not because life is going to be miserable, but that you can experience life in a greater degree than you could have ever experienced it otherwise. And Jesus used examples like this. So if you're familiar with the New Testament, he often talks about family and how he is to be uh, followed and have allegiance, greater allegiance to him than your father or your mother or your brother and your sister. And of course, he is not at all saying family is important, that you shouldn't love and care for your family. What he is saying is that I come first, my kingdom comes first so that you and your family can actually experience life. Now, for us in our setting, uh, as important as family is, it's not, family for us is not what family was for them in the first century. So it wasn't just like their family that they loved and they cared about, but your family was often also your safety net. It was also often your job. It was your inheritance. It was your being cared for in old age. And so Jesus is saying, I am greater than these things. And so maybe for our context, maybe you don't just think about family, but you would that Jesus in our context might saying that I am greater than your career or your dreams or your desires. Not Again, not in the sense that I want you not to do anything you ever wanted so that you can be miserable and follow me, but that you can experience my grace in the midst of as you pursue your dreams and desires, that Jesus as king comes first. But in the end, first, but in the end, Jesus is saying, it is worth it. It is worth it. And in fact, it's worth it. We see this in John chapter 1. We'll read one more passage here this morning. I'm sorry. John chapter 14, Jesus is with his disciples. And they have this question, right? They've been following Jesus for this point up to about, uh, for about three years. And Jesus is coming to his, uh, his crucifixion. He's going to be handed over. And the disciples, even though they've been following him for three years, they still have this kingdom mentality that at some point, even though that he has forgiven people, performed miracles and all these sort of things, that at some point he's going to gather his army and overthrow the Roman Empire. 
And so when he starts to explain to him, to them, that actually not, that's not what's going to happen, that I'm going to die, they start to get freaked out. They've been following you. What do you mean you're going to die? What are we supposed to do? And he says this in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 7. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that you may know, so that where I am, you may also be. Now, of course, he's talking about here when he returns a second time to inaugurate his kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Verse four, he says, you know the way to where I'm going. And then verse five, it says this, Lord, Thomas said, Lord, or Thomas being one of the 12 disciples, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Like you're going to die? What are you talking about? We know where you're going. And then verse six, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He's saying, you do know the way to life because I am the way to life. And as you follow me, you will be inaugurated and invited into his kingdom. Now, again, what makes Jesus' call in Mark chapter 1 for his disciples different, also different than typically how it would work for rabbinical school in the first century, is the disciples have not proven anything, right? So to continue to study under a rabbi after you turn 13 years of age, you typically would have to have been a good student, have proved in some way that there was promise there, that you actually observe the law of the Torah and you do what you're supposed to do. Like, it's not like anyone could just be like, hey, I want to keep studying. That's not how it worked. But yet for Jesus... He calls his disciples before they've proven anything to him. You see, in the kingdom of God, it seems that the only way to really know him is to follow him, that you have to repent and trust. And as you follow him, then you truly experience the kingdom of God. Again, it's not you've got to prove yourself, do all these things, show that you deserve it, and then you're welcomed in. It is no, Christ has done all of it for us through his perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection, and he is inviting us into his kingdom. In other words, here's how I'll close as we look at Jesus calling his initial disciples in the kingdom of God this way. Here's what we need to know. The kingdom of God is an invitation to live. The kingdom of God is an invitation to live and to experience life, right? The good news of the gospel is not that God has abandoned us or turned his back to us or says, you better follow me or do what I say or else. It's that God, who, although he didn't need us, gladly and with love and submission to the Father, Christ comes to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he's ultimately inviting us into what? Into life. And if you know how the story ends, God's ultimate kingdom will have no more pain, suffering, lying, death, deeding, 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 cheating, or tears. We'll have none of these things. It will be the perfect embodiment of joy and love and grace and forgiveness. It is life. And the gospel message is that anyone, no matter who you are or what you have done, can come and sit at his table. Uh, this is why often here, also here at New City Church, we talk about how this idea that scripture is not a compilation of just interesting stories that were kind of thrown together, but rather it is a unified story that leads and points to the Messiah Jesus. And what we see throughout the gospel of Mark is that we enter into his kingdom, not through power or force or domineering control, but by accepting him as Lord over our lives and living the upside down kingdom through the power of his spirit. That he invites us through the power of his spirit to experience his grace, his forgiveness, his mercy, and his love. And before there is any expectation of you doing anything, he simply says, repent and believe and trust in me. 
and you will experience the kingdom of God. And so here's where this leaves us. Right? If, you're, if you're here this morning, you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing, again, you need to be reminded that just like the disciples, by the way, they were not quote-unquote followers of Jesus before he calls them. And he invites them right where they are. And as we read throughout the Gospel of Mark, the, the, gospel, the, the disciples do a lot of dumb stuff, just like you and I do a lot of dumb stuff. And what does God do? Or what does Jesus do? He never turns his back on them. He never abandons them. He always invites them back into a relationship with him. And so if you do not yet know Jesus here this morning, you need to know today, right where you are, he is inviting you to live. And if you are a follower of Christ this morning, here's the reminder that he is calling us to go and to love people so that as many people as possible can experience his grace and his mercy. That you don't have to live with shame and regret, that you can be honest about your brokenness, about your falling short, and you can know that God loves you and cares for you right where you are. Because again, the kingdom of God is an invitation to live.